Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Ori, the CEO and co-founder at Upsolver, and we discuss coaching your teams through failure, how Upsolver's technology makes use of data lake houses to simplify big data projects, and how to approach hiring when scaling rapidly. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Where are you calling in from today? From Cupertino, California. Bay Area. Oh, nice. What is it like there? Is it, is it good weather right now? It's always good weather here, except for a few days. A bit cloudy, but usually the Bay Area really excels on weather. When did you when did you move to California? So a little more than two years ago, small company, a little bit of customers and, <laughs> you know, all in, but uh, turned out fine. Yeah. You have to go out and connect with the customers that you do have. I saw that you got to spend some time as like a database engineer in the army at the IDF, right? Yeah, I did. What was that like? Well, you know, you take a 21 year old kid that uh, did a computer science degree, but haven't tried uh, a lot more in his life. And you give him uh, intelligence database uh, with a huge scale, well, huge scale, you know, comparing to then, and a lot of responsibility more than you would get in a regular company that hires people on, on a free basis and not people that uh, enlist on a mandatory basis. So you get very, very good experience. And I think that's kind of the why uh, the iTech uh, domain in Israel is so strong because the army creates a, a pool of people that experienced uh, a lot while still being at a very young age. And my personal experience with meeting several people from Israel is they have a high amount of like determination and grit and discipline. Grit, determination, but on discipline, yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Like maybe personal discipline, but uh, uh, I don't know. People in Israel are known for breaking the rules. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's fun. Yeah, I was thinking as you were talking. I said, what would I have done if I had access to an intelligence database and I was twenty-one? <laughs> <laughs> I would have probably used it to like try to date. <laughs> Well, there, there is a list of about three to four things you go to jail for, and doing private stuff on an intelligence database is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God I didn't go. I'm not in jail. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So one of the things I was really curious about as I was preparing for this interview is I, I've heard of data warehouses. I've heard of data lakes. But what is a data lake house? I think the data lake house is basically the combination of both. So let's kind of step back and see, like go all the way back to when I started to being a DBA, you know, Oracle was my operating system. So I did everything with the Oracle and people tried to solve all of their problems in Oracle because the data was in Oracle. So, uh, you know, it works well for BI, but then you want to do machine learning or streaming or text search or scale. And uh, it didn't address all the needs. So uh, I think from a database perspective, it was still very, very good for performance and it was still very good for ease of use because I could speak the language of database. I could speak the language of SQL. But eventually I was bound and it was very expensive and I was locked in. So 
Then we saw another movement starting, and that was the early days of Hadoop, of a data lake. And data lake gave you the benefits that were missing from a database. So basically, you had your storage layer decoupled from the query engine. So you can take data in Hadoop, and you can send it to whatever database that you wanted. You could apply a multi-database strategy, so best-of-breed strategy. And cost was much lower compared to a database. But on the other hand, you lost all the benefits of a database. So you lost the ease of use, you lost the good performance. So you needed those big data engineers to do the work. So everything was bottlenecked in IT and data lakes became known for being data swamps. And now if we kind of fast forward, we basically have the same thing, but with new platforms. So we have Snowflake a great data warehouse, and I'm using them as an example, but there are others like BigQuery or Redshift that offer a decoupled uh, architecture, but you're still locked in. Like you still have to do everything. If you treat them as your only data store, you still have to do uh, everything in them. So you still have the same challenges that you have with Oracle. And if you go to a data lake, today you have the Spark-based platform instead of the Hadoop-based platforms but it's still a dupe. It's still the Hadoop ecosystem. You still need the big data engineers. You still need people that write Java, write Scala, write Python. So basically the same problems, but just uh, 10, 15 years uh, forward. And then the concept of a lake house emerged. And I think the concept of the lake house is trying to combine performance and ease of use from databases with the openness and cost model of a data lake. And you see different companies applying it differently, but that's the why. The combining these two benefits with these two benefits, that's the why for the lake house. So now you're, you're going to see different applications, but creating, moving all of cloud data analytics under one thing called the lake house that combines both benefits is basically the goal of many companies, I think, in this space. AppSolver is a part of it. So what's your primary product or service that you guys do at AppSolver? We build cloud, you could call it lake houses of build cloud data lakes, and we connect the data in the lakes to your preferred analytics house. So basically, we are creating the combination of a data lakes with a data warehouse. Our uh, secret sauce, or let's say superpower, is the ability to do that using SQL that people already know, or a visual interface, instead of writing code, instead of, uh, and you don't need to know, uh, all the intricacies and all the implementation details of Spark or Hadoop. So I was a DBA. We founded AppSolver because we wanted to take the modern cloud data lake architectures and make them accessible for the traditional database people. And I think that's what we do that's unique in, in the market. We are not the query engine, but we create the store so you can connect any query engine that you want. Well, that's pretty neat. How, how did you meet your co-founder? In the army. So uh, I was, at, at the time, was, was kind of late in my tenure there. So I was head of all data integration. And he was the CTO of a large data science group. And uh, we started to work together. And we actually tried to solve a problem in the area of advertising. You know, advertising packs a lot of data. So definitely more than you usually put in, in an oracle. And both my partner and I knew databases very well. And we needed to, uh, for the first time, really work with the data lake. And I rem really remember the sense of looking at a problem and say, if this would take me half a day with SQL, I would solve it on my own. And then going and hiring a big data engineer and 
seeing them working for 30 days and still not delivering the solution that, uh, that, that I wanted. So I, I really it created the need for me to apply the database language that I know on top of Cloud Data Lakes. And uh, Yoni, my partner being Yoni, is uh, is very strong with data infrastructure. We started building internal tooling, and that turned in those tools that we built for ourselves turned into AppSolver. And how did you come up with the name AppSolver? Well, it's solving in a better way, so it's AppSolve. <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> that is so good. I love it. <laughs> Same car, but different technology. There you, I love it. I love it. So, what do your customers look like? So. We have a lot of digital native customers because these are customers that want to iterate fast on data and being able to do something that would take a month in a day, it's uh, critical for their business. And we also work with uh, a lot of traditional enterprises that don't want to invest a lot of time. Big data engineering is not their core competency. And uh, so the same customers that would buy Informatica would buy AppSolver in the world of data lakes for the exact same reasons. These are the two main types. It's not that we only go to enterprise or only to small, and most of our customers come to us. So uh, that's how we, we discovered them. That's the best type of business, right? Yeah, I, I agree. Did you, did you feel like we need to cover examples? Like we haven't covered example. I wasn't sure if that's something that you do. If you have an process. example, give me an example, yeah. So uh, I think I'll give you the following. So I'm not sure if you've heard of uh, Iron Source. Iron Source is a mobile advertising company. They provide SDKs. So sometimes when you see these rewarded videos, it might be a good chance it's coming from them. Going to this published that is they're going to an IPO this year. Very uh, very impressive company with the amount of revenue that they uh, they, they they generated and the scale. The scale is crazy. And this is one of the reasons it was featured on the AWS uh, Big Data blog. And they generate today, they run through AppSolver five petabytes of data every month. So that's something definitely I haven't seen even during my intelligence days. Uh, definitely a data lake scale. And I, I met Iron Source where they decided to move from a, a data warehouse, cloud data warehouse, to a, a data lake. And they, they were working on AWS. And they were with the dilemma, should I build a data lake or should I take a product that builds the data lake out of the box? So classic build versus buy. And uh, the reason they chose us, and in the beginning, I, I was very focused on the fact that we are faster to value. So what the data lake they thought it would take a year to develop, I think in four weeks, we're already in, in production. That's very nice. But what I, I found out and I really liked that they defined us as the platform that gave access to data. So they said, we have, uh, let's say, I'm giving out, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not giving the exact numbers here, but let's say we have an R&D group with 100 people. So they say out of that 100 people, four people can serve the rest of the organization. Every data request needs to be funneled through those, these four people. So this is a classic IT bottleneck, a classic uh, data silo. And with AppSolver, you have more than 50% of the organization having access to the data and they can serve their own, self-serve their own data without going to that specific silo, that specific bottleneck. So we had about 15 times more users comparing to building your own data lake with Spark. And we did the project in about one-tenth of the, of the time. 
And I think that was a very good and impressive success. The scale just makes it more interesting because it's five petabytes per, uh, per month, millions of events per second, hundreds of instances running at any time. So definitely the scale makes it interesting, but I like the fact that we can take such a digital native organization that works so well with data and still help them. And uh, I really like that, uh, that example. Dude, that is really cool. That is a lot of data. Yeah, <laughs> lots of data. So when you got, like when you saw all that happening, had you already talked with them and partnered with them or did they just pick you up right off the app store and start using it? And uh, no, we, they went to our website. It was very early stage, asked for a demo. Uh, our process, so we, uh, we need to show the users that ease of use isn't just something that we promised in marketing, that it's real. So after a demo, we let the customers log into the product, connect the real data, and do a POC on any scale. So like in a few hours, you can have a production scale use case running, and that's what they did. And they started with one use case, and they were in production that use case after a few weeks, and they were... I think they increased the number of use cases by at least from one to at least ten uh, different sources that are being used to, uh, that are being sent into Absolver. So that's the growth that we want to see. We don't want you to to really rely on us to come and install the product and you know do the implementation on our own. You do the implementation. We just explain. How do you, should you model stuff in AppSolver? What's the best way to architect? So we consult, but you, you do it on your own. Otherwise, you're still dependent on the vendor, and we are still stuck in the old data lake days instead of being in the new cloud data lake days. And what's the most common use case you see across your customers? The most common use case, I would say that there are two main use cases. One, way, one use case, and that's the most common one we have, is that you're doing your analytics on top of your lake. Lake would be S3, for example. Amazon S3 would be your lake. So instead of sending the data to another warehouse, you're going to query directly from, from, uh, from the lake. That packs a lot of complexity because you need to structure the data in a good enough way for performance to make sense. And it's also harder to structure the data because you need to actually optimize the file system. That's something which is hard to do that we abstracted away and many of our customers use it. If all your data is in the data lake, sometimes you want to use another product because you think that product is better than to query the data from the lake. For example, text search. Text search is a problem that people like to use Elasticsearch or Splunk for. So you use the lake as a staging area. And then AppServer is being used to just send the data to the target. So this is usually the combination. We store all your data in the lake. We can make it queryable, or we can send it to the database you already use. So you make the choice. We don't intervene in your decision of choosing a query engine. You're going to use what you prefer. We're just going to make it easy for you to get the data. That's pretty cool. I like it. I really like what you guys are doing. Cool. Thank you. That's the idea of an open lake house. That's exactly. It's not the lock-in of Oracle, but it's still the advantage of a data lake. That's, that's, that's why the term lake house, that's what, what I see in that term. What's the, what's the long-term, like where is Upsolver in 10 years? What's the long-term vision? Well, this is, a, a, I hope this wouldn't sound too, too philosophical, but I'll try. I think that uh, the world of databases is going to a major change. Like if you're going to, and actually try, test what I'm saying now, but talk to 10 head of data and ask them which database technology they're going to use in three years. 
and they're going to tell you Snowflake and Databricks and Starburst and, you know, kind of all the cool startups names right now in the area of data. And then ask them what they're going to use in 10 years. And you're going to find out that the answer is S3. <laughs> so the, their perception of a database is storage. Storage is such a key piece for databases. So I believe in 10 years, all data would be on cloud object storage. So everyone would move to the cloud and everything would be stored on cloud object storage. And that's dramatically changed how database works because I think the main thing about the database, you kept going to the database because it held the storage. It, uh, it owned the storage layer. And now it doesn't own the storage layer. So another platform needs to own that. In, in the old days, an ETL would write the data to a database. Now the platform working before the database actually governs the storage and therefore must be used as often as you use your database. So I imagine AppSolver to be the platform you use to build and manage your data lake and connect your data to whatever query engine that you want. And I think query engines are going to be much more commodity. So it's not gonna be a, you know, Oracle Teradata SQL Server game. You're gonna see tens, tens if not hundreds of different query engines that are more tailored for the use case and how they're gonna get the data that's going to be absolver. Whoa, you just opened up my mind to like a whole new world. Uh, have you heard of them storing data in like glass or storing data inside a DNA? Storing data inside a DNA? Not, not an expert on that, on that field. So maybe in 10 years, all data would be <laughs> stored, and <laughs> stored in that way and I'm completely wrong. Oh, oh yeah, I've got an episode for you. So I interviewed this guy from Catalog uh, and they store data inside of DNA. And the ratio is a football stadium full of uh, storage servers compressed down to something that can fit in your hand. And it exists today. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Storage is the most important thing for a database. The rest many can build but the more any improvement in storage is just changing the physics just changing the the laws of the game so yeah that's a game changer so i've got a question for you here um i was just this past week i was talking to john he's the founder of a company called blackpoint right and they do like nation state cyber security really cool guy like worked for the nsa all that type of stuff and um i was i was curious you know when when you have these data warehouses or these data lakes and you're working with these multiple providers and stakeholders, you know, how do you think about security? Great question. So I'm going to tie it uh, to how we decided to architect uh, Absolver. And I think the cloud really changed the name of the game because in the old days you would store data on premise. So it was secured. We can start arguing about object level permit, column level permission, and row level permit. But eventually, people know knew how to do that, and that the data would still reside in house. So you're kind of be more concerned from your in-house employee than you're concerned about the external uh, external attackers. In the age of the cloud, you want to get the ease of use of the cloud. So now you need to start trusting others with your data and that's a problem and then kind of add some gdpr and ccpa seasoning on top of on top on top of that just to kind of make make things worse so the way we structured the solver is that we have a control plane which is a SaaS service basically a user interface where you're you where you you go to govern 
solver. But the actual processing that we do, we do inside the customer's VPC. And we do it in a way that, that we can spin up and spin down instances. So uh, we can fully manage the, the, the platform in their account, but we don't have access to the data itself. So only the customer has that, 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 uh, that access. And that creates a new dynamics where you get the ease of use of the cloud, but you still don't have to trust your vendor with your data. And uh, that made compliance much easier. So for example, AppSolver is still not SOC 2 and HIPAA compliant, but we have customers that have very, very strict data privacy laws. Why? Because they don't need to trust us. So it made, it made the, the lives of the, our life in selling the product much easier since compliance is just a blocker. Like there is, let's tell me what you do, but before telling me what you do, tell me if I need to trust you. So that's a major concern when you're selling today. That sounds like a huge benefit of, of what you do. I mean, you're giving them these modern features and you're in a zero trust environment. Like they don't have to trust you at all. That's awesome. Yeah, they don't need to trust me. I, I can't access their data. It's their data. I think that's how the future of data is going to be. I think we're going to have our pack of data and we're going to let things in and they're going to perform functions. We're going to see results and we're not going to have to give our data away to everybody. Yes. And I think that makes sense talking from, uh, uh, let's say, talking not as the CEO of software, as a human. <laughs> That's what I think should be done. Like we've seen how people mistreat, uh, misuse and mistreat data. Uh, and that's definitely not the future we want to see. So I was curious to know, you're a leader, you're building this company, right? And one of the questions that I get a lot from people that reach out from, from the podcast is, establishing yourself as a leader. So I'm curious to know, like, how do you establish yourself as a leader? Hard question. So there is, a, I think, a, a leader within the company and a leader externally to the company. I think um, for both, you need to build a team of people that can be better than you or are bad, better than you. And like not, bring the, not try to micromanage everyone. I think that's very important. And uh, like looking at from the side of an investor, if they see a good a good team and not heroes, then they believe that the company can scale. And within the organization, you're showing that people can become really meaningful in the organization. And that sets a good example for the employees. I would say the second thing is to lead by example and not do things that I, I wouldn't expect my employees to do. That's always very important. And I try to write from time to time, go on podcasts, communicate what I think so people would, would hear it. And I like to, to also have a debate about it. Uh, definitely, I think my, my uh, point for improvement for this year is to communicate more, more internally to my team and more externally to the world on what we are doing and why we are doing it. Yeah, because it's really cool. It's, we, we're going to help you get the word out as much as possible. I think it's very mm -hmm. fascinating what you guys are doing. Do you think that being in the army like helped prepare you for this? Did you did you have any lessons, like leadership lessons from being in the the army that helped you for your role leading at Upsolver? Yeah, I think it was uh, monumental in that sense. Since I think at the age of 23, I was already managing an R&D team 
and having ownership on product and project management and uh, you know uh, servicing users you don't get that usually at that age and that gave me a lot of experience and understanding what and so eventually the army is a large enterprise so understanding what a, a large enterprise wants and i think it also helped me so that's let's say the positive side to it the negative side to it is that you sometimes have the dynamic of a large enterprise where you have politics and you have uh, a lot of people that want to keep each other happy and i think it taught me a, a very important product lesson that eventually harmony doesn't create good products you need to be able to manage friction in a strong way disagree and commit is a uh, one uh, DNA thing that's very that's implemented uh, in AppSolver, and I expect people in AppSolver to 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 state their mind, to, to say what they think, even if it's not within their domain. And someone needs to address that, <laughs> and need to address it in a very specific way. And if someone is telling you that what you did is not good, then they're not trying to hurt you. They're trying to get <laughs> to a better product. And if you manage that friction well, you build a good product. And that's, I think, something that I really took from my time in the enterprise. And one of the reasons I wanted to start a company because what I love the most, and I, I love products, and I, I like to build good products. Building like a mediocre product is something that I really didn't want to do. And one of the reasons that we decided to, to build a company. I love that you said that. You said that so well. Someone disagreeing with you isn't like attacking you or saying you did something wrong isn't attacking you. It's... You're just moving the thing forward, right? Exactly. You need to have a lot of patience. Yeah. <laughs> you need to be experienced and have of confidence that understanding that it's not about you. It's about doing better together. Now you've got me curious. What other culture items? You have uh, disagree and commit. What, el what else do you have? I think that being uh, very attentive and obsessed about customers you, you always, uh, I always find that fast, fascinating when you talk to people from AWS, how well that's implemented on a huge company. How customers like talk to AWS without giving a specific example and how this served a specific customer. This the conversation is always from the customers and then uh, kind of work your way back from what the customer wants. And I think we have been very attentive to what customers are saying. You know, it's, it sometimes can be an art on what to what you want to listen to and what you don't want to listen to. And sometimes the feedback finds you, kind of puts you in a very uncomfortable place. The truth sometimes can be a little painful or scary, but uh, eventually you need to give that feedback uh, a lot of room. And I think that's uh, something that I've seen done well by many people in Absolver. So I would say maybe the, these are the strongest two. So uh, focusing on customers and listening to customers and uh, disagreeing commit. Yeah, I have noticed that the companies have gotten much better at listening to customers, even all the way down to when you're working with like a Facebook API or LinkedIn API, the, the steps from five years ago are so different. Five years ago, you would apply for a key and list a description. Now you're doing video walkthroughs of how you're using the product and how you're doing the integrations. Companies are really getting a lot better at listening to their customers. You said it's part of your culture. It's one of the most important two things. But how do you do like how do you train people to do that? Well, it's not it's not a one-time thing. I think that uh, every employee that I interview, I talk about DNA 
If you'll go to appsolver.com to about us, you'll see that we have our core values published and since we were 15 people. And we are, as we scale as an organization, we are trying to figure out how to embed that with, with people with ongoing example. How, if someone disagrees, like let's say someone goes above their manager and comes talking to me, I'm using that for the rest of the team as a good example of good behavior at Absolver. It's something that I respect and, I, and, I'm, and, I'm, go, and I'm going to give that person a proper answer. And uh, if I see the, the, someone acting from an ego or politics or something that that's not their business, then I'm going to call them out because that's not something. To, so if you do that enough time and enough people are getting these examples, then they start implementing them on their, on their own. I was fortunate, by the way, that my core team, all that you didn't need to encourage them to disagree. They all disagree. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't, so that, that really helps that, uh, that they, they did that. And then how, how is it, when you're dealing with failure, like with your teams, let's say they're trying to do something new, difficult, and then they fail. How do you approach failure within your teams? Well, we fail all the time. You know, <laughs> I wake up in the morning and fail twice. And <laughs> like, that's kind of what startup, uh, startups do. Uh, so there's no judgment. You, you're allowed to make a bet and find out that if it's the wrong bet. That's kind of the, the, the way things work. So I don't think that I've ever been mad at anyone for not succeeding. I, I, I would, wouldn't be happy if someone wouldn't communicate, wouldn't listen, do their own thing without explaining. Like the, it's more the behavior around how you managed your bet than, was, than if the bet was successful. And like that, that's the way we, we see it. You just made like an Instagram quote. That sounded really good. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's true. I'll write it right? down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is so important. You're right. It's not that you that you lose. It's it's your behavior uh, throughout the entire process. So so what are you learning right now as a leader? I think that uh, right now AppSolver is uh, in a pretty aggressive scaling process. So we were... 15 people six months ago we are 30 now and we're supposed to be 70 by the end of the year so i'm learning how to hire good managers good executives that can own their piece of the of the business how to uh, from how to interview to how to test and for example you asked me about dna the best way to keep your dna is not the hire to hire the people that don't have the right dna for a startup for, for a startup. So you really want to check that during the interviewing process, especially with an executive. So before hiring a person, you're going to talk to his pre previous boss, his subordinates, his peers, hair peers. I think that's, that's been very, very uh, uh, important. And for me, learning how to build such a team and how to structure that team and think large organization and not thinking as a, uh, as a team that's uh, definitely a, a change, but a, a welcome to change. That's so interesting that you say that because in our team meeting this morning, we were discussing the importance of checking references and the value that the references have when making new hires because they will tell you everything. <laughs> yeah. If I ask someone, would you hire that person again? And the answer is no or a slow yes, then it's, <laughs> then it's a probably a no so so what other like 
Did you ever make any big mistakes when, when hiring or what did you learn from those mistakes? Yeah, I've made mistakes. I definitely, I won't be specific. Uh, <laughs> Come course, on, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just to kind of keep people's privacy. But I've learned that when I feel that it's not that, you can't really change people. So uh, if it doesn't work, someone once told me, I think that's the extreme of it, that if you are wondering whether you should fire someone, you're probably three months too late. <laughs> so yeah. that's taking it to the, to the extreme. But eventually, we're not here to try and uh, change people's DNA. You, you can teach the material. You can teach the domain. But you can't really teach a person how to act. You can, if it's, let's say, you can improve a, 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 an 80 to 100. But you can't improve a 50 to 100 as an, as, a, as an employer. And eventually, that sinks the rest of the organization. It has to be their choice to want to improve on the behavior items. Like you can't force people to do it. You can't even really incentivize them that much to do it, to change like their core DNA. The only thing I've found to be successful is just shutting the door on the relationship. And then eventually they get enough doors shut that they have some self-reflective experience. Because I think that's what happened to me because I used to not be great. And then I kept coming up against things that wouldn't work for me. And then I realized, okay, I heard this guy talking and he had said, the most frustrating thing in life is wanting above average results without being an above average person. And I was like, oh man, I'm not an above average person. So then I went on this you know, personal journey to, to improve myself and grow myself. And it's, you get the results. I agree. I agree. And I think the step number one is awareness. Usually what blocks awareness is ego. <laughs> so as long as that person is willing to be aware and, 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 and improve, usually that, that, that will happen. And I can probably give a lot of examples of things that I've failed to do and didn't feel like I've accomplished enough. Uh, you know, I really like the test. Would I regret it? So let's say tomorrow I have to shut my startup down. If I wouldn't do this move right now, would I regret it? <laughs> and that kind of takes you out of your shell and forces you to do something that maybe you feel uncomfortable with. And I think that's kind of the best people I see keep forcing themselves outside of their shells, but that's definitely not everyone. It's yes. I know exactly what you mean. I know what maximum difficult is, right? I know that feeling of like maximum pain, maximum difficulty. And I don't live there full time, but I am a frequent visitor <laughs> <laughs> because that's the only way to grow. Otherwise, you just get bored with life. You're like, nothing's really happening. I need some challenging, difficult thing. And, and you go for it. Uh, yeah. Where, how do you get inspired? Do you watch YouTube videos? Do you read leadership books? Like, Where do you get inspire, inspiration from? Well, I think that eventually I get inspiration so I, i'm a huge uh, like management book nerd but it, it's been a really long time since i've, I've done that uh, i used to really like during my mba and before and after I, uh, I i read a lot of management books so i think i understand the theory but eventually the when you you get down to business you have a lot of plausible situations where you can there's no really right answer there's just the, the least worst option and then those are the these are the ones that I like to learn from more so I think that I learned the most out of talking from other CEOs 
sometimes talking to my investors, hearing from their experience, hearing how people did something specific usually is the most uh, inspiring thing for me. And so because your company is hiring, do you guys have, I didn't want to gloss over this, so sorry to change the topic. We were just talking so much about hiring and culture. And I was thinking this would be a good time to tell people like where your careers page is or how to go learn more about the company so they could apply. Yeah, go to appsover.com to the career pages. There are dozens of open positions, uh, both leadership and, uh, and not leadership. So uh, from product to solution uh, architects, to a head of solution architects, to uh, engineers, uh, account executives, uh, partnerships. So really across the board, both go to market and, and engineering. And are you in multiple countries? Are you working remote? Like, what is your work environment like? Yeah, so we are we are dual headquarters. So we have a, a base in Israel that's more engineering focused, and we have a base in the U.S. that's more uh, go-to-market focused. And of course, there are there are exceptions. Our executive team is located in the Bay Area, and our employees are spread in the, uh, like the, our U.S. employees are spread in the, across the entire U.S. So all the, I think about 10 states at the moment. We don't have a physical office now, so we shut it down during COVID. So everyone has been working remotely and that's not optimal, but what can you do? And I really look forward to having an office again, but it's never going to be the same five days a week office like it used to be. Like probably two days a week, maybe three days a week. And that's the most we're going to get to in an office. It, the freedom is so great. The ability to schedule everything around the work that you have to get done and just letting that that work really connect well to the KPIs that drive the business and create revenue. So it becomes very, very clear. Here are the actions that we perform that generate revenue and bring value to the market. And then getting that freedom to to structure your day around achieving those goals. I mean, I was not much of a remote work fan for my own businesses because <laughs> I liked having everybody together. It, it just gave me a sense of security, I guess. I liked having everybody in the room, but after we clarified everything and really, really focused, it's just become a whole nother, a whole nother level. And now we can get people, the best people from anywhere in the world to come work with us. Exactly. Like, I don't think we could build a team in the Bay Area. <laughs> but we, we, we would just not succeed in it. Like it takes too long. Uh, and you have really good people across the entire country instead of just one, one state. Do you think you're going to stay there for a while? Yeah, I am going to stay here. So you're one of the California people. Like You love California, not going to leave. Yeah, I like California. You know, it's uh, <laughs> it's expensive. <laughs> and that's, uh, <laughs> that's one drawback of California. But uh, weather is amazing. Nature is great uh, all around. So you can go from snow to, to the beach at the same, uh, you know, three, three hour ride. The ecosystem is here. So you have a lot of good people you can meet around here. So I think having being close to the ecosystem is very important. So I didn't move from Israel to the US and then still be flight away from the rest of the ecosystem. So I'm going to stay here. That is very true. There is right now, my wife and I are looking to relocate. And one of the biggest decisioning points for us is we need to be near a city that's populated enough to support her business because she does like uh, kitchen remodeling. 
And so you have to have the right market to do that, right? And it's very important being near near people. So I'm excited because I think when in a couple of years when people are meeting more in person, that uh, I'll be outside of a very large, like maybe 20 or 30 minutes outside of a very large city because right now I'm in a small city. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that because you're exactly right. Being close to the ecosystem, being close, you know, it's one thing if it's a, I'm going to wake up and it's going to be six to eight hours of travel time to go have this one meeting to develop a relationship in person versus just living in the city where there's thousands of potential people that could help you uh, grow. Yeah, makes total sense. I think the only reason to really be in the suburb is uh, for me, of course, is we have kids. And oh, yeah. like we need, uh, we need, uh, we want more room comparing like the environment is more friendly comparing to, uh, to the city, but being close enough to the city is important. Yeah. That is. So how many kids do you have? Two small ones. Yeah. I call them banshees. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good definition. <laughs> yeah. I've got a daughter who's about four, almost four and a son who's almost two. Yeah. We are. It's called Irish twins because yeah. they're never in sync. <laughs> and we have the same. So we have a, a two-year-old boy and a three-and-a-half-year-old girl. So we are really? in, the, in the same boat. That is crazy. Yeah, that is really, really, really close. Yeah. She is a talker. He is a terrorist. <laughs> yes! <laughs> I think that's... that's we have... Uh, that's... That's the trend, right? Talker and a t- I put, hold on, I'm gonna write that down because <laughs> my <laughs> wife is gonna laugh so hard. <laughs> Man, okay. Let's. Can we talk a little bit about the future of technology? Sure. Okay. So Domino's Pizza is like they're calling themselves. I saw an article for it. Right. They're calling themselves an AI front runner, and they're doing tons of AI at Domino's but they're also doing self-driving delivery. Have you heard about this? No, I haven't. Would you order self-driving pizza from Domino's? Why not? Exactly. It seems like Like, the logical next step. I'm not taking the risk. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just getting the pizza. (laughs) What do I care? It's even nicer. Maybe they'll find the place without calling me and asking me, how do I find (laughs) you? Like the DoorDash calls you keep having when you you order food. So I guess you have to, the car pulls up and then you'll have to go outside and get it out of the car. Unless if they do like last, like 10 foot, last foot drone delivery service of some type. Yeah. Drone would be better. So yeah, I need to get out. uh, But uh, you know, going down and taking it from a a robot is not, is not too bad. I think that's uh, generally a good thing. No, Domino's were already amazing. Like, I think that if you order pizza or your pizza from Domino's, then you're going to get your Domino's in a very clear time and you're going to get some communication to what's going on. You know, of course, the DoorDashes of the world change that because they're providing a similar experience with visibility and mobile app. But look a few years back, Domino's were all, already had a very good advantage from a logistical standpoint so taking that to the next step and doing it autonomous is very uh, is very cool they do you're right Domino's has been i haven't thought about this much but they've been ahead of the game for a long i remember on 
my flip phone refreshing a, a page to see the status of my order. So that must have been like 10 years ago. I could see the status of my order on Domino's. Yeah. Mm, we should have their CTO on. <laughs> Advances through logistics. So you remember the time that people thought that where there was eBay and there's Amazon and Amazon has all of this logistic burden on them <laughs> that's probably going to sink them <laughs> some people were saying that and i think that it turned out pretty well for them to have that 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 that, uh, that burden right there i don't even know i feel like they're going to open up a shipping company and then you could just ship stuff yeah. i mean they have an entire infrastructure for shipping they have all of these amazon trucks everywhere like ups and fedex they don't even really deliver the packages anymore where i live it, they all come in these amazon vans yeah, I would be surprised if they don't already own a bunch of logistic companies, but I don't really know. They have so much cash too. They could probably just buy FedEx or UPS if they wanted. Yeah, yeah. Probably. but they're they're they usually don't. If they don't buy them, they'll just beat them. <laughs> they're Amazon. That's crazy, and that's I I like their. I got really inspired by reading about some of their culture items there because when you see a system that that gets that big, it really highlights how important the principles are that are the foundation of the system. Yeah, I agree. And Amazon is a very efficient machine. And then we talked about DNA, how important it is. Look how many different businesses they own well and how, how much consistency you see across their, uh, their employees. So you're hiring, you're growing, it's exciting what's on your, like, what's the, what's the thing right now that you're thinking most about? Like, what are you really excited about? Well, I told you I'm a product guy. So I'm excited about the change that we're going to do the same change that inspired us to, to build the company. I think this is, this is the golden age of data. So look at like the IPOs, the investment happening in the market. This is the golden age of data. And I think the combination of uh, add the cloud into it, where you can completely re-architect the old products. So making heroes out of the traditional database practitioners, that excites me. Like every time I think about the next leap in the product that's going to include more of these practitioners, then that's kind of the part I'm most excited about. Of course, you know, it's exciting to scale the company and to scale the team and to hire the right people, but I think eventually it's serving the vision. And do you partner with those companies that you help? Yeah, so we have a whole bunch of partnership. I think maybe our, our most, uh, let's say, fruitful or close partnership is, is with Amazon, by the way, with AWS. So AWS would often recommend AppSolver. And like if you check out Twitter, you see that Jeff Barr, and their chief evangelist, just uh, tweeted about AppSolver, and he heard that it's a very good product. And uh, we were featured on the, in their last sales kickoff, and we have a whole bunch of customers that came as a result of referrals from AWS, and we often co-sell with AWS. But we, our product is, is accessible to the AWS marketplace. So we've done a lot of, a lot of work with them, uh, also starting to do some work with Azure. So cloud provider is something very, very close to what we do because we provide the cloud native architecture. What we can do now wasn't really possible before you could offer cloud native solutions. That's pretty cool. That's a, that's a deeper partnership than most. It's not like you just use them as your servers. You guys are like actual partners. Yeah. I think that because we complement their ecosystem, eventually Amazon is going to give you I think they have about 250 services. So you want to build a data lake, you need to use 
three, four, five, six services, depending on your complexity. And that takes time. And eventually it prohibits adoption. And it, it provides uh, competitors a chance to take business away from them. And then you put up solver and you solve the same thing that you would solve in six months in a week. And that increases adoption and it's good both for them and for us. So we are increasing their, their consumption and they're happy that we are making our revenues uh, from it as well. It's kind of good. It can be good all around. Also for the customer that doesn't need to spend six months building something. Is there anything that we didn't get to today that you want to get out there into the world? No, I think we are uh, we we have covered it well. Well, we did it, man. Perfect. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.